sorry. I was just trying to illustrate the differences between us. I don't enjoy being judged like this. It's very upsetting. Not at all pleasurable. That's all you really care about, isn't it? Your pleasure. Welcome to another episode of Delta Flyer. I'm Stuart Hollis. I'm Thad Hate. And welcome to the episode, Thad. <laughs> <laughs> this week we are talking about Season 1, Episode 10, Prime Factors. Yes, we are. So our synopsis from TV Guide. The crew encounters a hedonistic alien race with the ability to travel through the galaxy at will. An ability that may be the key to Voyager's returning home. Okay. Eh. Okay. Which part? Okay, well, for starters, they can't travel the entire galaxy at will. Uh, but that's yeah. minutia. Uh, the other thing is... I feel like it should mention the conflict because it comes up pretty quick. That the hedonistic alien race have their own. Yeah. Uh, that the hedonistic alien race will not share their technology. Oh, I wonder if that that's where the title comes from. Cause I had been sitting there wondering why like prime factors, why is it called that? That doesn't make any sense, but I guess if it's dealing with the alien sort of own version of the prime directive, then maybe I'm reaching. Yeah, I the I think that's what it was trying to say, but it's sort of it's still sort of weird episode title. Yeah, it, it certainly doesn't involve like heavy math or anything. Yeah. So so Memory Alpha says the crew of Voyager discovers a planet that has the technology to send them more than halfway along their journey home. However, the planet's inhabitants are more than reluctant to share this technology with Voyager's crew, as doing so would violate one of the society's own prime directives. The second half is solid, but the very, you know, the very first bit of that, where it's they discover a planet. The planet discovered them. That's not what happened either. It's not that's Omicron. Closer to that. <laughs> but yeah, speaking of the planet discovering them, how creepy was that dude? Who Gaff? Yeah. I never saw him as creepy. Okay. I thought he was creepy, but that's just me. Total that guy. Oh, yeah. Actor's name is Ronald Gutman. He was the chief engineer on board the Red October in The Hunt for Red October. Yes. There was a power spike, but the reactor scrammed automatically. Was there any core damage? Was there any radiation leakage? I don't know yet, damn it. How long will it take to fix? I gotta find out what's wrong first. Could be a problem with the liquid helium or maybe the superconductors. You don't have to go all yes as if you doubted me. I was thinking back in my mind. Uh, he also played, I think it was the German ambassador on an episode of The West Wing. They were, this was after CJ had become the chief of staff and they were doing weird trade deals because uh, they were trying to impose sanctions on somebody, and they needed the, more of the Security Council on board. I'll take your word for it on that one. I will immediately trust you on the West Wing. As well you should. So, there's an interesting little factoid about this episode. Go on. This alien species, the Sicarians, were originally going to become a recurring antagonist. Antagonist? Well, I mean, uh, recurring, yes, uh, enemy race, a la the Vidians in the Kazon. Wow, okay. But they didn't like how they turned out, so they decided not to reuse them. That's fair. I'm just trying to figure out 
how they would turn into antagonists. I yeah, mean, they, I'm wondering on that too. Because you have to imagine they made the decision after they had written uh, and shot, I suppose, edited the episode. Yeah, so, I would assume. I'm not sure where the story goes. I guess they just would just get really angry about them trying to use the technology. How does, I mean, how does going after Voyager bring the Sakarians pleasure? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's that's an odd factoid that I feel like doesn't quite add up. I mean, I I would maybe that's why they decided not to do it. But that's I there's this is from multiple sources that that information is here. So like in various interviews with different people involved with the production, they were going to do that and then they decided not to. Huh. Okay. So anyway, in this episode the Sicarians greet them in that weird way by initiating a distress call because Voyager needs rest and relaxation. Yes. So, I, I disagree with you about Gast being creepy, but I will admit that his sort of opening lines to Captain Janeway, where it's actually you are the ones who are in distress, feels like the opening line from a con man. Yes, it does. How can I help you? Right. Yeah. Well, apparently you can help me by helping you be pleasured. Which is not the first time we've had. Uh, it's not the first time we've encountered a race that is that mostly cares about providing pleasure to other people. That's a, a thing that has happened in Star Trek before, and will continue to happen in Star Trek. None of it in Discovery. That's true. They're too busy, you know being chased around the mycelial highway or something network whatever well no actually technically there were the people that were trying to there were there were the aliens that were trying to bring peace which ones when the the povins on uh the aliens on the planet the with the crystals oh the oh yeah 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 eh no <laughs> I did. I did like that. That episode is uh, has has now, thanks to that episode, Star Trek has now had an episode shot in a Canadian forest. That I I, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Because before that, because before Discovery, Star Trek was always shot in California. Hmm. But Discovery is shot in Toronto. Well, before we meet Gath and the Sakarians, we first have the crew. Bonding over Harry Kim's misfortune with yeah. the Delaney sisters. Yeah, we do. Which is it's just to show that the crew is coming together as a crew. Yes, as Janeway points out to us. Yes, she does. I think it's finally beginning to happen. Both crews getting along. That kind of bonding should improve performance and maximize efficiency. So something that stuck out to me throughout this episode, which I actually did enjoy the overall story of the episode mm -hmm. uh, and particularly Janeway in it yeah. was how largely interchangeable anyone who wasn't main cast and even a couple of the main cast were in this story. Like we, there's nothing about any of Bellana and Seska's interactions other than perhaps the very last sentences that they say to each other at the end of the episode. 
that indicate that they have a long history of working together, and that's why Seska is able to influence Bellana. Hmm. Yeah. Like the the very final scene obviously was a little different, but yeah. No, you're you're right on that. But it has something to do with um with being able to live with yourself. That doesn't sound like you. You've changed. If that's true, I take it as a compliment. It, same with Lieutenant. I got replaced. Carrie. Whatever. He got replaced. He did. That he dies later, so you know. Right. He deserves it. I mean, even even Harry Kim and Chakotay, they're fairly replaceable well, in this. Like it, it, it could have been. This is not the first time, and won't be the last, that we've remarked that Chakotay <laughs> is replaceable. <laughs> You're right. Tuvok was the only was the only crew member who could have betrayed Janeway in that way. Yes. Which is. Like, for me, the two sort of themes from the episode were about uh, like consent and then the flip side being deception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. So one thing that I also really liked, I, I really liked Bolana's final scene where she, where despite what Seska suggests, decides, decides to come clean and just tell the whole story to Janeway. I liked that, where she decides to take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. Because... That's something that Bellana wouldn't have done at the beginning of the season. Right. So Bellana had solid character growth. Tuvok, you know, that final conversation between Tuvok and Janeway would have been an excellent time for Janeway to knock a pip pip off his collar and just solve this problem. You know, it's funny you should say that. Because ten minutes before that, Harry called him lieutenant, even though he had two and a half pips on his collar. Right. But what I was going to get is this is actually this actually is the last episode where he has the three pips. But, yeah, they don't, so they could have, it was so, it would have been so easy to add a throwaway line for that instead of just taking up, getting rid of the third pip and never mentioning it again. Yeah, it, it, right around the same time where it's, you know, but don't you understand, I need you, or whatever the exact words were, but that doesn't mean that you can get out of this without any consequences. Yeah. I'm not going to revoke your commission, but I am going to bust you down to a lieutenant. Future knowledge, when Tom Paris disobeys orders and... Which time? Oh, yeah, okay. When Tom Paris disobeys orders and also goes against the wishes of an alien species, he does get demoted in rank. Strictly speaking, Tuvok never disobeyed orders. Okay, because she never ordered him not to do it? And it wasn't in violation of the of their prime directive. Right. Well, technically, by inter by uh, not respecting the aliens' uh, own system, that is a violation of the Prime Directive. It's a different kind of violation, but it is still a violation of the Prime Directive. I thought the Prime Directive was only about doing stuff like that with pre-war civilizations. It's used in different ways. It it it, do, it does apply uh, to pre-war. Uh, it, it the prime directive means you you basically can't interact with pre-warp at all, or if you do, you have to disguise the fact that you are from a different civilization. Uh, but it also means that you can't interfere with another civilization as well, even if they are post-warp. Mm. Okay. But yeah, uh, what I'm saying is, yes, Tuvok should have gone down a rank, and he does, and they should have just done it. And you are absolutely correct on that. 
Yay! So, Harry Kim, uh, as it, there's the story about Harry Kim being, you know, not exactly great at uh, romantic interactions at the beginning of the episode, and then when he gets super excited about the the transportation, he, you know, also missed out on some romantic interactions there. Yes. Because yes. there's nothing that would have changed if he had decided to, you know, stay for a while and listen. <clears throat> but <laughs> instead, he had to go back and talk to Janeway immediately. Uh, yeah, you know, managing to block not just himself, but her as well. Yeah. Both of them having apparently made peace with the idea that they were not going to be seeing their respective partners anytime soon. Yeah. Well, apparently Harry definitely has since he's been, you know, doing stuff with the Delaney sisters. Listen, Harry Kim just wanted to... He thought he was just going to have a conversation with her in the gondola in the Apollo Venice. Didn't He didn't realize that she approaches uh, people at warp speed. Mm. Perhaps... I can't remember what... I, they only gave the one a name, and I forgot it already. Perhaps Harry's Delaney sister would have been better to be paired up with Tom Paris. Mm, that's a good point. But I wonder how voracious was... Paris's. The other Delaney, yeah, no, that's true, they could have been, and also you have to wonder, you know, if one of them certainly approaches men at warp speed, and of course, obviously, Tom Paris approaches women at warp speed, would we get something like the end of Last Jedi, where they just like... <laughs> well, here I'm thinking, the Delaney sisters always do everything together, so they probably also approach men at warp speed together. Together or identically? Identically, probably, but possibly together. We don't know. Possibly together. Maybe there's only room in each gondola for two. Mm. Otherwise, Harry could have just had a conversation with himself. Yes. Yes. But getting back to Harry's lack of game mm-hmm. later in the episode, mm-hmm. and my point about one of the themes being consent, was he tells the story of the caretaker array... And the woman he's with, whose name I have forgotten, I wrote down like no one's name. Uh, like and Gath, I only remember because they made a point of saying it five times. But she was super enthralled with the story and then explicitly asks if she can have his permission to share it with others. It's a very noble story. Noble. Mm-hmm. Stories can be whimsical or frightening or, or melancholy or many other things. But noble stories are the ones that can most affect our lives. May I have your permission to tell others this story? Yes. Yeah, that is sort of an interesting consent thing there. Well, I mean, it has parallels with things that we talk about in recent years about what what can and cannot be done without someone's permission. Yep. Which wasn't quite as big a deal in the 90s. Or, or I mean, consent wasn't as much of a public consciousness thing in the 90s. Yeah, and we'll see if this is a, a one-off incident in Star Trek, or at least or in Voyager. Uh, if only because they're dealing with a hedonistic race. And so I think that rolling in that bit about explicit permission 
plays into that specific story in a way that it wouldn't necessarily with just any other run-of-the-mill alien species. Yeah. And and lastly, it was this like highly deferential species who asked permission for everything. Like, maybe we have permission to board. Maybe we have permission to sit down. Maybe we have permission to give you a high five. Yeah, that would get old after a while. It, right, but in this case, because their culture considers stories to be a part of that person, and as she tells us, uh, noble stories are like at the like at the top of the heap or something when it comes to that, that specifically requesting permission and seeking consent to share it squares, I think, with the idea of a society that is built upon everyone trying to reach maximum pleasure at all times. That makes sense, yeah. It's an interesting society. It's like a libertarian amusement park. Mm. Now hold on there. Every, any, any rate the market offers is by definition a fair market value. Right, so, you know, who knows how much they're going to charge you to get into the amusement park, but once you're inside the amusement park, everyone should aim to have as much fun as, as, as they possibly can without infringing on anyone else's fun. Subway, eat fresh and freeze. That's a deep cut inside joke. There is absolutely, there is exactly one person who is going to listen to this podcast that will get that reference. Yes. <laughs> Hello to that one person. You know who you are. And if it's two people, then you both know who you are. I don't know who the second person... I don't either. (laughs) So, Harry gets trajected... Yes, he does. ...to the planet Alistria? Alastria. Thank you. And he's just really caught up in the idea that what do you mean it's dawn now like the sun just went down before we're on a different planet etc and his companion tells him that Alastria is and she just keeps saying it over and over again it's like where are we Alastria is if that explains everything Mm -hmm. Uh, as if Voyager star charts if they even had the Delta Quadrant mapped which they don't but if they did, would call every planet the same thing the Sakarians call all the planets. Right. And that Harry Kim would have it memorized. But of course he would, because he's a Starfleet officer. So anyway, because he's a Starfleet officer, when she tells him that Elastria is about four and a half billion times as far as the distance between Sakaris uh, and its sun, and they keep calling it a sun instead of a star, even though the sun's what we call our star and it has nothing special to it right anyway and he and he says well gosh that's nearly forty thousand light years mm-hmm. so because the name of the episode is prime factors and math was on my brain i did the math does it not work apparently no no i mean no it totally works I, I, all she was giving was just a multiplier so how could it like how could it not work well, it could mean that the sun, that the that Alastria's sun is like at some. Oh, that their star was like was like weirdly closer, weirdly far. Yeah, no. The answer is that it is one AU, the same as ours. Okay. Uh, approximately, the what I came up with based on like it's it's nearly four and a half billion times, and that's almost forty thousand light years, or whatever the exact verbiage was. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on those. The answer came back 94 million miles, and we are, uh, give or take, 93 million miles. Like, an AU is 93 million miles. Right. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, then that means that and it makes sense that if they're going to trot out an uh, exact number like four and a half billion, it makes sense that they would have done the math. Except later, Janeway tells Paris to leave the system at 4,000 kph, which is not very fast. That is not the first time that's happened. <laughs> that's like tugboat speed, man, when it comes to starships. Wasn't it Parallax where she tells them to go to a planet that it would have taken them literally years at the speed that she said to go? It, yes, like three and a half years or something. Uh, but thinking about that now, almost certainly she had meant get us out of this immediate vicinity at whatever impulse she had called out and then and then jump us up to warp three or four. Uh. And then we just didn't hear the second half of that sentence. Like it just never got said. So, and that may be that she wants Paris to leave the system at that speed, but it also seems weird to me that the captain is telling the helmsman what speed to leave a system. The specific number, yes, is weird. A captain telling a helmsperson, like, something like one-quarter impulse, that makes perfect sense. Like, it's the specific number that's weird. Yes. Not just because it's almost certainly too slow in light of things like impulse engines, um, but also because, I don't know, I mean, I suppose that a captain might tell the helmsperson, person, you know, lay in a course to whatever speed 20 knots. Captain, we are approaching the first turn, 25 seconds to course one. Increase speed to 26 knots and recompute. Hmm. All right. And I, and the captains have always said the speed. It just seems like, it feels like that's more... That, that should be more the helms person's purview. What speed they need to go to get from point A to point B in X time. Well, if they're not given a time to get there, like if they're... Like, I would say that it would fall under the captain's purview because it falls under ship guidance and then also when it comes to tactical scenarios, it's the captain's call how fast they're going to go. If they want, if you know, if they want to say with all possible haste or some sort of phrase that doesn't call it a specific speed, and leave it to the helmsman's discretion to decide what they think is the fastest that they can handle, then that's one thing. But yeah, all right. But yeah, still though, it's like tugboat speeds, man. They have impulse engines, just like just skedaddle. You want to put this plane in your rear view already? You probably shouldn't. You probably shouldn't use the impulse engine to leave orbit. Why not? I don't know how they're alleged to work. I don't either, but I feel like like uh, we do have a mention in Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 6 that they're only okay. supposed to use thrusters when leaving dock. They do say that, but did they... I want to say maybe in one of the Kelvin tracks it was... On thrusters until we leave space dock. Yeah. Now, granted, space dock is a little different than orbit, but still. Right. And space dock is is probably considerably more cluttered than. And you do have that tiny, that tiny, relatively tiny door to go out of. Yes. Yeah. Especially as compared to the idyllic space around planets in the Star Trek universe. I'm thinking about just how like crazy cluttered. Yeah. uh, that's true. In the 24th century, any spacefaring culture should have, like, all sorts of stuff in orbit of their planet. 
maybe they all at one point deployed satellite collecting satellites. <laughs> but then who collects the satellite collecting satellites? They just they just let themselves burn up. They collect themselves. They destroy themselves. And maybe Voyager is standing well outside of the planet's communication uh, web. That's also possible. Assuming it has one. I mean, Elon Musk is trying to build a satellite-based worldwide internet system that would have actually pretty low-flying satellites. I mean, not like... They're all going to be pretty small, so you wouldn't. it's not like you'd be able to see them with the naked eye or anything. It's not like airplane low. It's definitely out of the atmosphere, but as these things go, pretty low. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all right. What's the latency going to be like on something like that, though? Isn't that like the killer problem with most satellite-based services? Well, that's the point of putting them low. Uh, I guess, yes. If you have less distance, it... Yeah. So you probably shouldn't play Counter-Strike on them, but browsing the web would be fine. After Gath reveals to us that they have their own prime directive, mm -hmm. they don't share their technology, but we wouldn't abuse it. Isn't that exactly what an abuser would say? That is, yes. Uh, we get our, our meeting back on board Voyager with the senior crew, and at a certain point, Tuvok, of all people, says... Since they've already said no, this kind of thinking is only going to make you feel worse. Yeah! Tuvok. What would you know of feelings, Mr. Vulcan? Well, Vulcans have feelings, they just suppress them. But, Vulcans also live their life as if feelings don't exist. So, yeah, that is a weird thing to come from Tuvok. To me, I kind of feel like Chakotay would have been the ideal person to say something like that. Yes, it would have been. But, in this episode... Chakotay is being played by a slightly dinged-up end table. So, like, in all honesty, I cannot remember a single Chakotay line from this episode. Any number of Starfleet officers have abandoned the Prime Directive when it suited their purposes. Ah, yes, you're right. That was a Chakotay. It's not word for word, but that is yeah. what, it's one of the things that Chakotay said. Uh, another one, if only because I just finished rewatching the episode an hour ago, was... Tuvok has beamed down to the planet, 15 uh, yes, more minutes and all the crew will be he collected. Did. You're right. And I'm sure at some point he said, good morning, Captain, or something. <laughs> He's the one who alerted to the distress call. I did not remember that at all, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you know, Chakotay had a couple lines, but none of them were, like, Chakotay-specific lines. Uh, no, in the same way that one of the only lines that stuck out to me for Tom Paris, uh, I mean, other than the beginning when he's giving Harry Kim a hard time along with everyone else because it's Harry Kim uh, <laughs> was towards the end when he says something, but it's not above board when they're talking about stealing the trajector matrix or integrating it or at some point along their, their plan of deception in order to go against Janeway's wishes and get their, uh, get their bus back home. I was thinking, Tom Paris is the one to say, but this is not above board? Yeah, there's that too. So this is the episode where characters are not in character. Because like I said, for like, outside of a couple of the, the senior crew, everyone's interchangeable this episode. Well, we do have to remember this is the first season. 
So at this point, a lot of these scripts were probably written before they even knew who the characters were. That is a good point. Yeah. Because, I mean, for the most part, we had Balana, Janeway, and Tuvok. Those are the three characters that matter in this episode. Yes. But, yeah, the others, yeah, they could have done anything. Other than, obviously, the opening scene with Tom and Harry talking about the Delaney sisters. That wouldn't have worked if that was Tuvok. But... It is illogical for you to think that I did not get with both Delaney sisters. <laughs> nice. Nice. Also, I was trying to remember, but I couldn't... I, I, I was trying to check, and I, I didn't actually look it up, and I probably should have. The woman in blue next to Tom. Did you... Sitting just behind him. I Yes, I noticed her. I was wondering if maybe that was one of the Delaney sisters. No, the Delaney sisters are brunettes. We see them in an episode later. Oh, okay. No, I was wondering if it was uh, if that was um, the first appearance of Samantha Wildman. Oh. But I didn't look it up, so now I'm going to do that. No, she looks different. She was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is blue. She's blonde, and she is blonde. But no, that was not her. Okay, no. Uh, she doesn't show up at all until season two. So, my headcanon is that was a quiet Samantha Wildman who then had some plastic surgery in between season one and season two. You know who in blue? I need more rhyming. There's no doctor in this episode. You're right, there is no doctor in this episode. Like, at all. Yeah. Which is who in blue, and then I just like completely Ooh. lost the thread because I was trying to figure out how to like work the doctor who back into that. In blue. Nice, nice. I knew you would see this through. Yes, but the the scarcity of my rhymes just would not do. Mm. I had to have more than two. This is true. What is a man to do? I will tell you. You're right. The doctor isn't in this at all, is he? No, we had Kess. We had Neelix. Uh, she and Neelix. Yeah, she and Neelix are hanging out together when Gaff first comes aboard with treats. And Neelix mentions the legends that he's heard about the Sicarians, how they like to give people pleasure. Yes. Their hospitality is legendary. Yeah. Neelix is still wearing that hat. He's never going to give up that hat, man. I feel like he gives up the hat at some point. I hope he gives up the hat at some point. I also hope he gives up the hat at some point. Gath does have the correct reaction to a pecan pie, though. Yes, he also pronounces it correctly. He does. Uh, I, I do like the idea of you'll have to give me the recipe because it's like the simplest recipe in the world. Pecans and corn syrup. Like, yeah, I, I think that some recipes call for two different kinds of corn syrup, both light and dark, just for giggles, I, I guess. Uh, but it, it's it's really straightforward yeah. to make. Uh, now that said, do the Sicarians have either pecans or corn? No, probably not. So then it gets more complicated. Yes, or the ingredients necessary to make the pie crust. I I feel like it's more likely that they would have something akin to they would have something they could make the pie crust from than the, than they would have something approximating a pecan. I feel like, no, I, I, I think that they would have something approximating all of those things. And it is surprising to me that for a culture predicated upon seeking pleasure, that this is their first time experiencing you know, 
something that's 80% sugar. That's a good point, yeah. I mean, that would be like, if it wasn't for the fact that Roddenberry was vehemently anti-smoking, then being like, goodness, we never thought to grind up herbs and light them on fire and inhale them before. Or they never had alcohol. Right. That, that That's a better deal, because that would have fit in with the allowances on board the ship and the writing staff. And Roddenberry was a fan. Yeah? Roddenberry was a fan of most things that could alter the mind. I did not know this. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't say what all Gene Roddenberry partook of, but I do know that he definitely was uh, open-minded, shall we say, about drugs and alcohol. Neat. But this is not the Gene Roddenberry podcast, so... No. But yes, you're right. It is. It does seem odd that they he never would have had something as sweet as pecan pie. Yeah, I mean, they could have been like, you know, this this reminds me of a Lastrian something pie. Because mm-hmm. that's such a common thing on Star Trek, too. Yes. So you know what? An Enterprise trip does not pronounce it the way that you say is right. I know. The dictionary says both are right. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think we've covered most things in this episode. The only last thing I wanted to bring up was... When they are trying to integrate the trajector into Voyager systems, mm-hmm. A, how do they already have a perfect interface prepared? I was wondering about that, too. They have the two holes right there to plug it in. And did you notice that the two pegs are slightly different diameters? I did not, but that makes it even more ridiculous. Yes, because if they were just only going off of... Harry Kim's sketchy memory of seeing it for 15 seconds or something, I would have allowed for the idea of him getting the fact that it was like, oh, and the bottom had these two pegs, you know, four centimeters long, approximately two centimeters wide or whatever, right? But the fact that one of them was actually slightly wider than the other one, no. Also, how did the simulation not show the antineutrinos? Why was the simulation not being run on the holodeck? That, too. I was expecting that the first time around that I was watching this, that it was like, oh, God, everything, we're going to blow up the ship. And then it actually does blow up the ship. And then it's, you know, Janeway steps into the holodeck and reads in the riot act because they're, you know, they did the one thing she specifically told them not to do. Yeah, but seriously, though, why did the simulation? Because they turned on the device to run the simulation. So it should have been able to, like, get everything from it if it was able to get anything from it maybe i've only interacted with no alien technology in my life that's fair that you know of that's true you don't know what all is actually alien how do you think apple keeps making those things thinner man because a ship crashed from the 29th century back when steve jobs was on a spirit journey in joshua tree you know you thought we weren't gonna mention uh, I'm not you. I mean, the, the listener. You thought we were going to get through this episode without mentioning Future's End. You were wrong. I thought we were going to get through this episode without mentioning Future's End. I kind of did, too. I'm glad that you uh, brought us back around, though. We will continue to mention it time and again. <laughs> nice. I'm done. I want to say I, I, I wanted to talk about something with the people. Okay, so they love giving pleasure. I get that. But really, they're going to make 
Janeway an entire wardrobe out of that super rare fabric? I was wondering that, about that too. The idea, like, the fabric is woven from the petals of a flower that only blooms in moonlight. Is, is the flower also incidentally like a dandelion on whatever planet you got it from? Well, I mean, because otherwise it just seems that just seems wasteful. Yeah. Also, if it does bloom, I mean, we don't know what the pattern of their moon or moons are, but I'm thinking here on planet Earth, we get moonlight fairly often. That's not really all that infrequent. I mean, if that wouldn't be... That's to the romance. Yeah. But it's like, if it only blooms... I feel like that's akin to saying it only blooms in sunlight. I mean... Not... Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that moonlight, moonlight is more rare than sunlight. Yes. Because there isn't one day a month where the sun just doesn't show up. How cool would that be? It would be very cool. Yes, it would in fact get quite cold. <laughs> yes, that would be, I, man... <laughs> Like just like the species, like the the flora and fauna that would have like that would evolve on a planet like that. All right, so if we take it like for the moon, so that it would basically be like one day a year, one day a month, where like the sun is doesn't come above the horizon, but the sun is still there. It's not like the sun disappears, right? So it would just be a dark day. That day would be cooler than other days, but it wouldn't get like, you know. I was thinking more of like a disappearing act. Yeah. Okay, that, that would, would be that would cause all sorts of problems because then the Earth wouldn't keep going in a circle. So then, when the sun came back, it would be in a different spot relative to the sun. That would cause ugh. The Earth spins on its axis because of its core. No, no, no. Not I meant the, the Earth. Okay. Oh, oh, and the orbit. Yeah. No, 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 no. We're imagining. Some weird scenario where an alien race has figured out a way to cause any given star to collapse upon itself into a black hole and then reignite or something. Okay, so the mass is still there, so the so the orbit stays. Right, yeah. Or like it's it's enclosed inside a Dyson sphere and or or a a Dyson sphere is being built, and it rotates around the sun such that one once every thirty Earth days, the the part of the sphere being constructed blocks the path to Earth. Okay, so it would. That's interesting because I'm wondering. I'm thinking the residual warmth plus our atmosphere would keep us fairly insulated for that. You didn't get a chance to experience a ninety-five percent eclipse. It got super cold. Not super cold, but like a solid 10 degree drop. And that was with the sun being 95% blocked for like a minute. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Because let's think about day versus night, man. Uh, Yeah, but... But even then... In the night, the sun's on the other side of the planet still cooking it. I think life... Uh, would find life, a way. Uh, would find a way. My point was, what kind of life would grow up on that kind of planet? Mm. Okay. But I really don't think <laughs> the, this situation is in any way plausible. If we are talking about one day a month where the sun doesn't come above the horizon, it wouldn't have much of a difference at all. Then, no, you're right. It, yeah. It would just be like this weird thing where 
one day a month, we have a 48-hour nighttime. Right. Yeah. So it would just be like, we would just be Norway two days a month. So, and for symmetry, would would there also be the one, there would also be the one day a month where the sun never sets, too, then. Right, exactly. So, yeah, it, it would be basically like living at the extreme poles of our planet, but monthly instead of on an annual cycle. So, like, circadian rhythm wouldn't even be a thing. No, 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 no. Huh. That would be funky. Yes. It would be very, very funky. I mean, even, yeah, so even in that regard, the flora and fauna would be very strange on this planet under that scenario. But I, I think the one where the sun, like, literally like, effectively disappears for 24 hours every 30 days would be even wilder. Yes. Because the, because the temperatures would plummet dramatically. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, like, rivers would, would, like, freeze solid, but they would probably get, like, a solid skin of ice on them. Yeah, probably. There certainly would be a lot of plant life that currently lives on Earth that would not be able to survive that. Uh, yeah, and... Yeah, it would have had to evolve with the idea that it could just become, like, winter-ready every 28 days. Sounds like this planet has evolved to kill humans. We promise. <laughs> Did we? We didn't, but maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen worse movies. Yeah, I mean, it's not the numbers. Station. Right, exactly. <laughs> Do not watch the number station. This is not an invite for you to think that we're joking. It's not, no. They're, yeah. It, no redeeming quality whatsoever. This is probably not the first time we've mentioned it, and that's because it is a it is our measuring point of just bad movies. Yes, it is absolute zero of terrible movies. I haven't seen The Room, and I haven't seen The Disaster Artist. Although apparently The Disaster Artist is actually like a good movie in light of what it was referencing off of. But I, I've never seen The Room. But I have to imagine that just like the comedic value of being able to make fun of the room, that it that is its redeeming quality. There is no redeeming quality to the number station. There really Not is. one. None at all. I have watched all kinds of bad movies. Just terrible, horrible, no good, very bad movies. Nice. I've seen Plan Nine from Outer Space. Oh you have? Which Yes, which is entertaining. And has redeeming qualities, just in that it's like it's so entertaining seeing a movie this bad. The number station punishes you mm-hmm. while you're watching it. Don't do this to yourself. Indeed. What you should do instead is follow us on Twitter. We're at Delta Flyer Pod. We are. You can also go to our website if you want to just like download episodes. That's deltaflyerpod.com. You can send us an email. That's deltaflyerpod at gmail.com. You can tweet at Thad directly at Tyrannicus. You can tweet at Stuart directly at Gamicus. We're also on Facebook where you can uh, check us out there, leave us a review like Chuck, who dropped us a five-star one. Thank you. Yeah. I'd just like to point out that Chuck is pretty awesome and clearly has great taste in podcasts because he also gave a five-star review to our other podcast, Stargate Weekly, which you can find at StargateWeekly.com or on Twitter at Stargate Weekly. Everyone should be more like Chuck, I think. This is true. They should all think that we're awesome and leave us five-star reviews saying so. The world needs more Chucks. So many more Chucks. Also, I would like to do a shout-out to my friend Johnny, who has commented on every episode that we've posted so far. 
because that's just cool, and we love that you're listening and that you get excited enough to leave us feedback every week, Johnny. We are very happy to be part of your regular podcast listening experience, as you told us, and that's what we're doing it for. Also, to make bad jokes. It's mostly to make bad jokes. That's very true. And that's our show. Yeah. Bridge to Captain Janeway. Captain, we're receiving a distress call in one of the lower subspace bands. The subspace distress signal is coming from a vessel bearing 125 Mark 21, distance 200,000 kilometers. And the possibility exists that we could reconfigure the matrix at that point to take us another 30,000 light years, right into Federation space. I know of many times when Starfleet personnel have decided on strong ethical grounds to ignore it. Maybe they want something. Maybe they'll bargain. What do you think, Captain? Would they be interested? Aye, Captain. Mr. Tuvok is on the surface now, Captain. He says the remaining away teams should be on board within 15 minutes. Aye, Captain. As soon as the last of the crew gets back, we'll be ready to leave.